Father in heaven, to whom a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Forgive our impudence and impatience in trusting too much in the unworthy and unreliable wisdom of this world. And help us to wait by your trustworthy words that we may be ready at the appearing of your Son, our Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, and King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. So we're starting a series um, called Words to Wait By. This is just for Advent. It will conclude on our Christmas service um, because we're, we need words to wait by. We need something to help coach us while we wait because we get impatient. Because perhaps now, more than ever, we need trustworthy and faithful words. We have a culture where words are cheap. We have leaders who lie to us endlessly. I didn't do it. Oh, I've been caught. Okay, I did it. All the time. That's the default response. We can no longer trust what people say. And even in our just more innocent social gatherings, not so much, you guys, but maybe, I don't know. But as a culture, we're cheapening words by the day. And see, I believe that words for Christians are sacred because God created the world with words. He spoke heavens and earth into being. God came to us as the word. In the beginning was the word, as we read earlier. And that Christ spoke the true words of God and that we have had passed down through the scriptures the very words of God. For us Christians, words are sacred and they're not to be taken lightly. They're not to be thrown around. And we want to anchor our lives on words that are trustworthy. But words lose their meaning when they no longer mean what they're supposed to mean. I think that to use words out of their proper time or place is to profane a word. To use a word out of its proper time or place is to profane a word. Now, I know that's a much bigger definition than cuss words are bad words. Um, I think when we use words without intentionality, and we just flippantly joke about like, oh, this is happening, oh, Lord, have mercy. Like, we're cheapening that prayer, Lord, have mercy. Or when we use, um, I promise, about trivial things, when maybe we should be taking everything we say as a guarantee. When suddenly say, I promise, they're like, everything I said before isn't a promise. Um, there's, just, there's a right time and a place for words. And the Christians hold words sacred, at least especially the words of our faith. And this next few weeks, we'll be looking at these words in Scripture. There are some specific words that the Bible uses that say, says, these are trustworthy words. Five times in Scripture, Paul writes, the word is trustworthy, and then he gives us the words. What are these five trustworthy words? Well, I have four weeks, so we're going to do four of them. One of them is, um, he who is called to pastoral leadership, or this is a trustworthy saying, whoever is called to pastoral leadership desires a good calling. Um, I'm just not going to do that one. Maybe I will in January, but not, not, not in Advent. 
So here's what we're doing. We are waiting for Christ. Advent looks back at his first coming. It also looks forward to his second coming. Advent is simply a Latin word that means coming. He's coming. He came. He is coming. And in between, we are praying that our hearts would be open for him to come into our hearts. So we're looking back in gratitude. We're looking forward with yearning. And we're opening our hearts in the present for his presence in our midst. This is what Advent's about. And this is how the Christian starts the year. We start waiting on the Lord. Not getting ahead of him, not making plans without him. We start waiting and then we go into what he's leading us into. So, okay. So here are our words to wait by. The first one is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. You're in 1 Timothy 1. That's where we'll be. But here are the other ones if you want to know. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 4 verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You don't get to see what that is because it's more like the whole paragraph. But there it is. You can read around it. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for... If we've died with him, he will, we will also live with him. And it goes on a little bit more. And then the fifth and final one is in Titus, the next book over. Titus 3, verse 8. Oh, that's not Titus, so I'm confused. There it is. Three, you know when you know where something is in your Bible and it's not there? Like on the certain side of the page? First uh, Timothy 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Everything above that he had just said is trustworthy. So those are the five. These are trustworthy sayings. And those are all except for the First Timothy chapter 3 that we'll be looking at. Um, okay, so when Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, this is like when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. It's similar. He's saying you can, this is a certain word, certain word, truly, truly. Paul's way of saying it is, this is a trustworthy saying. Or we would say something like, um, you can take this to the bank or you can bank, you can bet your life on this. That's the similarity. So we would say you can bet your life on this statement. So these words are trustworthy because they mean what they mean. And they will always mean what they mean because Christ doesn't change. That's why these are trustworthy words. So I want to, I want you guys to now at first Timothy one verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or most remembered of whom I am chief. The saying is trustworthy. It's three simple Greek words. Pistos, hos, logos. Pistos, hos, lagos. Pistos is faithful, trustworthy, reliable. Hos, the, lagos, word. But some of you know a little bit of Greek to understand that lagos is also the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, was the lagos. Literally what it translates as is Faithful is the word. Pistos hos logos. 
Faithful is the word. Christ is faithful. Therefore, his words to us, we can put our lives in them. So as we wait, as we get impatient, as the world distracts us, this is where we can anchor ourselves. Um, The word spoke creation into being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word is faithful and true. And that's what we can bet our lives upon. So here we go. Um, The pastoral letters. This is what 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These three letters are considered the pastoral letters because Paul uh, dropped off some of his sons in the faith who he's mentoring. Timothy, he drops off in Ephesus. And Titus, he drops off in Crete. And he tells both of them, look, These churches are in need of some balance. I'm leaving you guys to these churches to balance them. So these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy to Timothy and Titus to Titus, um, are Paul's giving them instructions on how to bring balance and order to these churches and, most importantly, to restore the true teaching because false teachers had crept into these churches. Okay? What is eye-opening about these three pastoral letters is that in every single one of its 13 chapters, Christ is explicitly mentioned at least once. In every single one of the 13 chapters, Christ is explicitly mentioned at least once. You know what this tells me? A healthy church, a true church, is one that centers Everything it does around Christ. It also tells me another interesting thing is that Paul did not see how to grow attendance in the church or how to keep the board faithful entertained as priorities for bringing order back to these churches. I get emails. I'm a pastor. So, you know, you guys know how you get emails. You don't know where they come from, how they got your information. Because people sell your stuff around, right? Well, they're like somewhere they link, oh, this email address is a pastor, interested in churches. So I get emails sometimes. And man, so many of them are like, how to make your church successful, how to make it big, how to get people to come in. It's like, it's not quite how Paul wrote his letters. And it just struck me like, this is so different than the way we talk about church and culture. To, to Paul, Christology, the, 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 the study of Christ, the position of Christ, Christology was far more important than methodology, than how we do things. If we put Christ at the center and Christ first, everything else comes into place. He is the center of gravity that we orient around. And the minute we put something else in the center, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be imbalanced. Because, oh, no, no, we've got Christ, but we're centering around this concept. Well, now we're going to be out of balance because the weight of Christ is going to throw everything in this lopsided orbit. Yeah, to Paul, his encouragement to the church, to Timothy, to Titus is, look, as we wait for Christ, worship Christ. That is our duty as we wait for him is to worship him. And it's startling how often a Christian does not understand that that's their duty. Christ asked us to worship him. The God of the universe wants us to come to him and serve him. Because he wants to restore us to our great joy and what we were created for. And yet, even as Christians and in the church, we tinker with so many things that Christ becomes part of the picture, 
but not the picture. And tonight we see the first trustworthy saying is super Christ-centered. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Okay, enough of that. Um, so this first trustworthy saying, Charles Spurgeon called it, I love this, this is good, the gospel in a single verse. That was the title to his sermon on this text, the gospel in a single verse. It's like, who wouldn't want to know what that is? Well, here it is. Christ Jesus came to save, to came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Um, but what we want to see is that this trustworthy saying is in the very middle of a paragraph that starts in verse 12 and takes us to the end of verse 17. It's in the very center. So here's what's going on. Paul is sharing his personal testimony and giving thanks to Christ for what he's done in his life. So check this out in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful or trustworthy. It's the same word. He judged me faithful, trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I am pouring out thanks to Christ who is strengthening me because I was this dark and lost sinner. His mercy came, saved me, and now overflowing grace is being poured upon me so that I can have the faith and love that is in Christ. He's not just saying, God showed up and said, stop sinning and I stopped sinning. That is one part to what he's saying. He's also thinking Christ who's giving him strength because Christ is enabling him to continue to walk in a certain direction where he is becoming closer to Christ and more unified into the life of Christ. His grace is overflowing, he says. That's what leads him to say the gospel in a single verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Then in verse 16, Paul tells us that his mission to save people is a result of his conversion. The reason God came and visited me was that I can bring others to him. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, people say, oh, God can't forgive me. Paul's saying, wait a minute here. I imprisoned Christians. I persecuted them. I blasphemed God. I was a violent and proud man. And Christ saved me. Don't you dare tell people whom God can and cannot save. I am a foremost example. And this is why I exist. Paul's going around planting churches for this purpose. And this concludes then in verse 17 with a doxology. It's, it's a hymn of praise. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And for the record, the commentators I read see that verse 17. They call it a doxology because they believe the wording structure is similar to what was found in Jewish synagogues. And they believe that the church brought this doxology from a Jewish synagogue and continue to use it in the church. So in other words, Paul isn't writing this doxology. This is him citing a doxology that the church knew. So this, this great, his, my, my testimony, the gospel in a verse, my mission on earth leads him to explode in this doxology. You can just see him penning it out and just like, oh yeah, this is a great time for this one. And he puts it in there. Um, we point out the context of this verse because this is also showing us how we are to worship Christ while we wait. Okay, we're not passive people just going, well, he saved me from my sins. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to do my thing. You do you until he comes back. By the way, you do you is not a trustworthy saying. Terrible saying. Because first, okay, I'm going to rant just a minute because I never put this in my notes and I wanted to, but here it is now. (laughs) Which you are we talking about? You do you, Frank. Hmm. You do you, Brandon. Okay. So tonight I'm going to get home and be tired and be like, oh, Week's job done, and I'm going to say, ooh, ice cream. (laughs) And a movie. Once the kids are finally asleep, it'll probably be like two in the morning when I'm done. But, you know, ooh, this is, okay, that's Brandon side one. Brandon side two. I want to be in shape. I want to do a Spartan competition like Lydia did. I want to be strong and healthy. Which brand am I supposed to do? This is an untrustworthy saying because it does not show us who to be. It just basically gives you permission to do whatever you want and not call it sin or not call it stupid. Where was I? (laughs) Oh, yes. We're not waiting for Christ saying, I got my ticket to heaven. Now I'll just... You do you. Like, no, but that's not us, brothers and sisters. We see in Paul what we're to do while we wait. We worship Christ by giving him thanks for our salvation. We give him thanks for our salvation. Every Sunday we start after a couple songs by giving him thanks. In the Psalms and in our spoken prayers, we give him thanks. Because this is primarily our act of worship. We do nothing. He did everything. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Then, so we're thankful. We, we worship by being theological. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. We want to know the gospel. We don't just talk about how to be better people. We want to press into Christ and say, this is Christ, and this is how Christ works in your life, and we want him to be part of our lives. We also need to be missional. Paul says, for this reason, mercy was given to me, that I may be an example to others, that they can have eternal life. He's reminding us that we are thankful and we're, we're theological so that we can go out and be missional. Our thanksgiving is attractive to people who are entitled and grumbling that nothing's good enough. Do you understand that our, especially our younger nation, is so entrapped with comparing themselves to other people? They have nothing to be thankful for. It is a dark place to see what everybody else is doing, obviously polished up to look better than what you're doing. And to think, I have the worst life ever. 
The Christian doesn't go that route. We focus on what Christ is doing for us continually on a day-to-day basis. We give thanks, and that is something different in this world. Oh yeah, we have Thanksgiving, but most people just kind of, oh yeah, we're thankful, yeah, family, woo, then some beer and turkey and football. Like, that's what a lot of people in America do, right? That's not us. We are giving thanks for every little thing. And some of you beautifully prayed, thank you that our mountain didn't burn during the Santa Ana winds. That's a Christian spirit, not entitlement. But man, even this day is a great mercy from Christ. That I woke up and got to come to church and there wasn't a hundred hatreds in my heart for Christ. Like that's something to be thankful for. Because I was once a person who was not interested in Christ. Praise be to him. And that we have this beautiful gospel that the God of heaven came to earth as a man so that the men on earth and women can then be joined with God forever. How is that not the greatest story ever told? Our theology and our thankfulness leads us to be missional. It leads us to share with other people. And then all of this encapsulates itself in doxology. We are a people of praise to God. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. We sing almost, we sing a lot of Sundays. Um, to the king of ages be glory and honor and power forever. This is what we're doing. Okay. But here's our trustworthy phrase. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want us to look at this by asking three questions about it. Who came into the world? Well, obviously, Christ Jesus. But don't just take that like, oh, yeah, Christ Jesus came in the world. Like, Christ Jesus. Also, he flips the wording. Usually you hear Jesus Christ. So much so that you actually have to clarify to people that Christ is not his last name. Christ Jesus. It makes us think. It makes us pause. Ah, Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. So another way to say it is Messiah Yeshua, Christ Jesus. Messiah meant the anointed one. And it was, it was used to refer to those who carried out God's purposes, like prophets or kings. They would even anoint them with oil. That was the anointed one. What this means, Christ Jesus, is that Christ is God's anointed one. The Father has sent his anointed one to accomplish his purposes on earth. And Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Trinity coming to us. Consider this, Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit, this is Gabriel to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing Christ to the earth. Matthew 1 verse 18. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He is the anointed one, Christ. Jesus means savior. It's also the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which is an Americanized way of saying Yeshua. Yeshua means savior. And this is what Gabriel, or the angel wasn't named. The angel told Joseph in his dream. Remember Joseph's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. My, my betrothed is pregnant. And the angel comes and says, settle down, settle down. She's found to be child with the Holy Spirit or from the Holy Spirit. And then he tells Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what we're being saved from. 
Christ Jesus, carrying out the purposes of God to save the people of God. How did Christ Jesus come into the world? We know who came, Christ Jesus. How did Christ Jesus come into the world? First, he came. This means he came voluntarily. It doesn't say he was pushed, he was convinced, he was bribed, he was forced, he was kicked. He came. There's a voluntariness that's implied in this. I want to come and rescue these people. Um, He came into the world, which means he was not in the world, which means he was in heaven, which implies his divinity. So there's an implication there that he came from somewhere else to come to us. He came from beyond this world. um, And then how did he come? He came fully human, fully divine. And this is important because he didn't just appear. It's not like he just, like a little flash, magician's flash, and hey, everyone, here to carry out God's mission. You've been waiting for this for a long time. Remember the prophets, and he's just there. No, he didn't just appear. He came, and he became what we are. Like, when God decides to come to us, it's bewildering that he decides to come as us. That's what's hard for me to get my head around. He could have come in some form that was not touchable. Or if you, it's like the Holy of Holies. Like you touch him, you get zapped and you lay down dead. It's not how he came as a human. And this is totally important. Um, If you want to know more about this, you can hear our Christmas message last year, right? Detail the coming of Christ as man and God. But for right now, Gregory of Nyssa, the fourth century saint, will suffice. He, He said this. What has not been assumed has not been healed. What has not been assumed has not been healed. Meaning, if Christ did not assume our whole nature, then our whole nature is not healed. If he was only flesh in appearance, but not in nature, then we are only saved in appearance, but not in nature. What is not assumed is not been healed. It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. So if Jesus is fully God and comes to us, he must come as fully human so that you, your full humanity, may be united to his full divinity. That's the gospel. And that's what we mean when we say Christ Jesus came into the world. He came fully divine and fully human so that my full humanity, in all of its flaws, this whole person, Brandon James McCulloch, born whenever, it doesn't matter, this, this being can have full union with the divine Godhead. That's why he comes as man and God. He's the bridge and he makes it possible. So we know who came, Christ Jesus. We know how he came. Third question, why did Christ Jesus come into the world? To save sinners. Good job, students. (laughs) Christ, I heard someone say it. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, not condemn them. We need to hear that. John 3.16, very similar to this. God, it tells about sending his son into the world so that we have eternal life. It's like, God's perspective of this verse and Paul's using Christ's perspective of this verse. Similar idea. But John 3.17, always neglected. I love that William always quotes John 3.17 more than he quotes John 3.16. Or is it in your email, Nacelle? You always add 17 to 16? Yeah. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Christian, stop condemning the world. We can name sin, sin. That's not condemning it. But leaving it to its status, it's just going to hell in a handbasket. That's condemning the world. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, not condemn them. He came to save sinners, not help sinners save themselves. Huge. Because right now, Christianity is merging with New Ageism or self-helpism. There's nothing wrong with trying to improve yourself, okay? I know I sometimes rat against self-help stuff. It's totally great to improve yourself. But my goal is to say, don't become the Christian who sees self-help as your sanctification. Christ sanctifies us. Or more properly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Okay, my improving my life is not my salvation. He did not come to show us a good path and say, oh, if we imitate that, we'll have great lives. There's a lot of talk right now like that in Christianity. Christ did not come to help us save ourselves. He came to save us. What did he save us from? This is going to sound super obvious, but from sin. We have to clarify because there's a lot of Christians who walk around thinking that God saved us from God. That God is really mad and he's really upset. So he sent Jesus to be punished so that he can then accept us. But friends, as popular as it is to hear that, Scripture nowhere says that God had to reconcile himself to humanity. It always says he reconciles humanity to himself. It was we who needed reconciling, not God. Jesus didn't come and persuade God to accept us. That's the view that we are saved from God. We're not saved from God. He's loved us from the beginning. We are saved from sin. By the way, I sold you a couple verses. Um, Um. That's all, folks. Second Corinthians 5.18 says this. Um, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It doesn't say he was reconciling himself to the world. He was mad. Well, someone needs to make me unmad. Nope. We were lost. And he needed to show. In fact, we were mad at God why we betrayed him in the garden he's reconciling us to him colossians 119 for in him all this is in christ all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through christ to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross he's not reconciling himself to all things he's reconciling all things to himself It's the all things that need to be turned toward him. So, brothers and sisters, we're not saved from God. We're saved from our sin, which then leads us to realize that we are saved from condemnation and for liberation. So if we're saved from our sin, it means that there's nothing that tells God that we hate him. He's not mad at us, but we have been walking around siding with the demons because we do what demons do. We sin. He's saving us from that. So if you want to have the destiny of demons, go ahead. You'll be condemned. (laughs) 
because you get to share their fate. But if you want the fate of the Son of God and to become like God, cool, we're going to follow him. Um, we're saved for liberation. So yes, there's a past that Paul is forgiven from. There's a past that I have been forgiven from. But that's not where I stand. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Christianity where it's like, okay, I've been saved from these bad things. Yay, I got my ticket to heaven, and that's where we are. Not realizing that when he came to save sinners, he's saving us from sin so that we no longer have to deal with sin in our lives. I, I, it doesn't mean, oh, cool, he won't condemn me when I die. He's trying to liberate you right now and in the future so that we can become more like Christ and be unified with him every day. Sin is that which gets in the way of my union with Christ. I don't fear that, oh man, I yelled at the kids today. There's a lot of Brandon's short temper today. Um, I, don't, I don't fear, oh man, I'm condemned. Well, glory to the Father for communion, which we're about to take, because he forgave me for all that. That's, yes, that's true. But actually, he's saving me from my sin tonight. He's saving me and he's trying to show me a path where I can say, where he's telling me, Brandon, you don't have to keep being mad at your kids. Look within yourself and say, my goodness, where is this junk coming from? God, take it. He's saving us from our sins in the present and in the future as well so that we can enjoy the life of Christ today. And when I say enjoy, I don't just mean, oh, cool, I get personal pleasure. I mean, the world is changed when a Christian enjoys and is unified with Christ. Because others see something beyond that person living in and through that person. And all of us are desperate for something beyond ourselves. Culture's struggling and reaching, but they can't find it. Okay. So, Paul here has, uh, that's the trustworthy saying, by the way. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the thing. Paul adds on at the end. Speaking of sinners, I'm the chief. Give me the crown. <laughs> but Paul doesn't just excuse that. I mean, I, I had a bad past. It's hard for me to get over this stuff. He says in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's overflowing grace for overwhelmed sinners. Paul's not saying I'm chief because, well, I've done this thorough examination of all the sinners out there. I've been to Ephesus, to Corinth, to, to uh, I'm you know, blanking right now, Philippians, Colossians. Like, I've been to all these churches. I've seen a lot of sinners, and I've examined, I've compared, and I can tell you with full assurance, I am worse than all of them. That's not what he's saying, actually. That would be a terrible practice for you to do, to examine other people's sins and to compare yourself to them. Terrible idea. You'll be proud. At least I don't do that. Because here's what happens. When you focus on other people's sins, you miss the sin within yourself every time. 
Paul rather is saying, I am the chief of sinners because in the light of this overwhelming, overflowing, abundant mercy and grace from God, in the light of that, he sees himself as he really is, the chief of sinners who is terribly not in love with God who is terribly hateful toward his neighbor, who is terribly lazy and sluggish towards the things of Christ. That's what he sees. And so for all who take an honest look at their own sin will come to the same conclusion. I am the chief of sinners. Brothers and sisters, Paul's not ranking us. You can claim the chief of sinners if and only if you are willing to take an honest and thorough look at who you are before God. This is also one of the reasons why after we come into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, we confess our sins. Because it's so easy to get in the habit of thinking, here are the holy ones. We're so great. And look at the empty seats. There's so many sinners on this mountain. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like them. You've heard this one before, right? By looking at our own sin, we recognize that I am a sinner. That's my status. And guess what? I will never outgrow that status sinner. Never. Because as soon as I outgrow the status sinner, I outgrow God. Hmm, that sounds so wrong. Jesus, Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. Are you part of that crowd? I want every day to remind myself, I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, had this playful experiment. This is what he did. He prayed in two different manners. He said, I once went to God in prayer, boasting about my virtues and my attainments and my growth in grace and my service for him. I showed that I have as good a right to do that as anybody else has. I have served God with all my might. I have laid everything at his feet. But when I tried to pray that way, I knocked at the gate and nobody came. I knocked again, but nobody came. There is a little wicket, you know, that they open just to look out and see who is there. So they asked the gatekeeper, who is that knocking? And I answered, oh, it is a saint. It is one who has grown in grace until he is perfectly sanctified. One who has preached the gospel for many a year. Well, they just shut the gate at once. They did not know anything about me in that capacity. So I stood there and got nothing. That's one way to pray. At last, brokenhearted and full of grief. I knocked again with all my might. And when they asked, who is there? I said, here is a poor sinner who has often come to Christ in that capacity and has taken him to be his whole righteousness and salvation. And he has come again just as he used to come. Ah, they said, it is you, is it? We have known you for many years. You are always welcome. I found that I had access to my God when I said, I am the chief of sinners. I am still a sinner. 
Acknowledging our status as sinner puts us in the right company. For Jesus came for sinners. And who did he hang out with? Who did he eat with? Sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. So yes, when we confess our sins and we look within and we continually to see all the things we've done day after day, yep, you will continually recognize I am the chief of sinners and you will never outgrow your sin, but don't be discouraged because that's precisely where Christ meets us. That is precisely where he meets us. So it seems to me, and I'm sure to, to stories I've heard, that as we battle our sin, it seems like it never works because we feel more sinful. In other words, like as I battle my sin, I, I suddenly become aware of its presence in my life. And now all of a sudden I'm always aware. Like true, true fact. A year ago, I considered myself totally void of anger. A year later of confessing sins every day, <laughs> I have realized that I'm confessing anger every day. Am I getting worse? Maybe. I often fear that I am. But I also think that when we wrestle against our sins and refuse to just sit in them, but use the grace of Christ to say, yes, lift me out of this, save me from my sin, then that's when we suddenly realize the full grip and the things that sin sink into us. So take heart, brothers and sisters. The closer we get to Christ, the clearer our title sinner becomes. You're in good company. And I would rather have a church full of sinners who walk in humility than upright somethings that people just say, oh, Christians. The greater the sinner, the greater the saint, because Christ Jesus came. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever.